Well, as you will be aware, there are whole tracts of the Bible that we've uh, really done no justice to at all, and I guess that's inevitable. It's a much greater book than eight hours could ever hope to begin to start uh, covering. Someone in the break said, what about the Song of Solomon? Where does that fit in? Um, Well, it fits into the wisdom literature, I think. It's part of that application of God's truth to life. Uh, I think it's primarily a poem celebrating the joys of married love and uh, seeing this as one of God's good gifts to his people. I know that there are extensive um, allegorical views of the Song of Solomon about Christ and the church, and insofar as the New Testament says that Christ loved the church as a husband must love his wife, you've got a parallel there. That actually raises an important principle, which is, I think, that we need to look in the New Testament for the key to understand the Old Testament. Uh, That's really the point I make at the beginning of this lecture, that the unity of the Bible, and we're on this sixth sheet now, the Gospel, Matthew to John, is that everything finds its fulfillment in Christ. He's the interpretative key. We look at the Gospels to discover the Gospel, the good news. Now, that principle extends much more widely than that. If there is an Old Testament story that is referred to in the New Testament, then we need to take the New Testament use of it as the interpretative key uh, as to why it's there in the Old Testament. The, uh, the old uh, rhyme says that, that the uh, new is in the old contained, the old is by the new explained. And that's what it's doing. It is saying, um, go to the New Testament in order to read the Old Testament properly, Christianly, and use the New Testament keys. Now, when we're then interpreting Old Testament stories, I think it's important for us to use that principle. Otherwise, we may get into a fairly fanciful, allegorical interpretation that doesn't have a great deal of um, weight or significance. Particularly, I sometimes do a seminar called Preaching Old Testament Narrative. And one of the things I try to say in that is that what we have to remember is that the hero of all the Old Testament narratives is God. It's actually all about God doing things. If you make that the key of your interpretation, you won't go too far wrong. But if you start saying, it's all about us then you have to try and fit yourself into the story and make some allegorical bridge from the story to our situation. It isn't actually all about us. The Bible is a book all about God. And uh, as we shall see in the Gospels, that full revelation of him in his son. So, yeah, there are things we haven't uh, covered. We haven't mentioned Obadiah. Um, You know, Obadiah is going to go up to lots of people in heaven and say, did you enjoy my little book? (laughs) Some of us are going to be a bit embarrassed, I think. But... um, There's so much there in the Bible for us to find, isn't there? Well, now, we turn to the New Testament. Otherwise, I should go on talking about the Old Testament for the whole of the uh, lecture. We turn to the New Testament and to the Gospels and to uh, the beginnings of the fulfillment that we've been looking for as we've been uh, tracing the steps of the Old Testament prophets. I do want to stress again the unity of the two Testaments as one revelation. God doesn't change. He deals with people on exactly the same basis because of his unchanging character. So the old view that said the Old Testament is all about law and the New Testament is all about grace is unworthy of the Bible. That's not right. Law and grace run together through both Testaments as the character of God is revealed. But, of course, the grace of God is seen in its fullness in the gospel of Christ. And these messianic expectations that we were looking at of the Davidic king, of the priestly servant, of the princely mediator, all of these find their fulfillment now as the gospels record the words and the works of the Lord Jesus. 
So we turn to the four Gospels, thankful that God has given us four accounts with different reflections from different standpoints, but all conveying the one Gospel of Christ. The term Gospel, to mean the first four books of the New Testament, dates from the mid-second century of the Christian era. When Matthew started to write, he didn't say to Mrs. Matthew, I'm going to write a Gospel, dear. Such a thing didn't exist. But he wrote a book which explained how Christ fulfilled the Old Testament. That's, of course, one of Matthew's great themes. So what we call Gospels developed as a genre, a type of biblical writing, um, because of the needs of the church and the preaching of the gospel in the world. But it is important to go to the Gospels to discover the gospel. Strange thing about evangelicals that we often try to preach the gospel from the epistles that are addressed to the church, and we don't preach the gospel from the Gospels. And I think we need to change our, our methods on that. Now, what about the nature of the Gospels? Just a, a few words of introduction. Firstly, their origin, twofold. Obviously, their origin is historical in the words and works of the Lord Jesus, the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, what are described by the Gospel writers as his gracious words and his mighty works. Remember my formula in Lecture 1? Event plus explanation equals revelation. The Gospels are revelation because of the events of Christ's life and death and resurrection, historical events and all that he did in his ministry, and his explanation, his teaching. And the Gospel writers inspired comments on what happened. So the ministry of Jesus, the events plus the explanation, constitute the origin. But more than that, because in John's Gospel, chapter 14 and verse 26, Jesus made a great promise on the night in which he was betrayed to his disciples in which he said, The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, this is John fourteen twenty six, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So we have not only the words and works of Jesus, but we have the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the apostles in the writing of the Gospels. That promise is a very specific promise to those apostles gathered in that upper room. Uh, it is true, of course, that the Holy Spirit is our teacher and that as we submit to his authority and ask him to illuminate our minds, he will teach us everything that scripture teaches us. But this direct inspiration was for these apostles who were to be the writers and the proclaimers of the gospel of Christ. And isn't it a wonderful thing to know that God himself reminded them of everything that Jesus had said? Um, if your forgettery is as good as mine, you'd be greatly encouraged by a verse like that. So we're not following cunningly devised fables, as Peter said, but the Holy Spirit inspired gospel writers. But what was the process, secondly, by which the gospels were uh, written? Well, there was, of course, an oral tradition, as it's called, a spoken tradition, before the written gospels. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, one of his earliest letters uh, in the New Testament, when in that famous passage, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, what are the things that matter most? And um, I can find it in my Bible. He says, uh, I received, sorry, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared. Now, that says, you see, that before the Gospels were written, the fact that Christ died for our sins and was buried and raised was being proclaimed as the heart of the gospel. Some people say, of course, the church is a much greater authority than the Bible because the church wrote the Bible. But what we have to say is, no, the church only exists because of the revelation 
that was later written down. The primary authority is the truth of Scripture, the truth of the Gospel. Christ died for our sins, he was buried and raised. The great facts of the Gospel are the very reason why the Church exists. So it's not that the Church wrote the Bible, but that the Bible, in that sense, gave birth to the Church. It was the Gospel that brought forth the Church. Now, that oral tradition was passed on uh, by the apostles, and you remember how concerned they were that it should be accurately passed on to Timothy 2.2, the verse greatly loved by the navigators and uh, many other Christians because it's such an important verse. The things you heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, Paul says to Timothy, entrust to reliable men who will, be also, who will also be qualified to teach others. So there was an oral tradition in the apostolic church. The apostles taught their followers who were to teach others who were to teach others. Uh, that means that the missionary preaching of the gospel was from the very beginning at the heart of what the church was doing. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and declared the mighty works of God. And what did he do? He preached Jesus. He preached the gospel to them. And from the day of Pentecost onwards, the church is a missionary preaching church, declaring the saving events, the character of Christ, calling men and women to repent on the basis of God's intervention in grace through the cross and the resurrection. So the oral tradition is there before the written Gospels. But the written Gospels come at the point where the apostles begin to realize that it is necessary for these truths to be recorded for posterity. Uh, I think it is true to say that probably in the early days of the church, they expected the return of the Lord Jesus to be very soon indeed. They have been told, this Jesus whom you see going into heaven will come again. Their reference point was the ascension, and they probably thought, well, as we've seen him go, we'll see him come. They didn't know it was going to be 2,000 years. But as the apostolic generation began to die out, and as the situation developed that clearly they needed to have a guarantee that this gospel that was being proclaimed was the true gospel, they began to commit to writing the things which they had passed on from by word of mouth. Now, it, it didn't just happen like that. There had been written accounts all the way through. People had written down notes, undoubtedly, and there may well have been some sort of embryo gospels circulating in the church before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written. But you see, when Luke starts his gospel, he shows that he had certain sources that he was able to use. Just look with me at the beginning of Luke for a moment, because the oral tradition was already being written down. Luke 1, 1 and 2. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled amongst us. Isn't that an interesting statement? See, he sees the gospel as fulfillment of the Old Testament. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I've looked at all the sources, it seemed good also for me to write an orderly account for you, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. That's why the Gospels are written. An orderly account based on the oral tradition, based on the, most, on the things that were most surely believed from the beginning, some of them probably written down in various forms, and then gathered together, in this case by Luke, as the heart of his Gospel. And when he comes to write part two of his gospel, the Acts of the Apostles, he says something very similar. He says about what he's done in the gospel in Acts 1.1 in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. Now I'm going to tell you about all he did after he'd gone to heaven through his Holy Spirit and through his church. 
So the process is that the apostolic tradition, what Paul calls the pattern of sound words, was taught and preached before it was written down in gospel form. But it was, of course, also memorized. You see, the disciples, although they promised that the Spirit will bring everything to their memory, they were probably taught, as any rabbi would have taught Jewish disciples, by rote. The way that the rabbi taught you was that you memorized his teaching. So when they came to to remember the teaching of Jesus, it wasn't that they had to say, now, what was it he said when he was sitting on that mountain? Um, Something about blessed are the pure in heart. No, it wasn't like that. It was that they knew this. They'd been taught it over and over again, probably. The pattern of sound words was already part of their thinking. And when they came to write it down, under the inspiration of the Spirit, as Jesus had said, they were guided to accurately convey the truth. Now, their purpose was so that with the generation of the eyewitnesses dying out, that truth might be preserved for us in successive generations, that the church might be true to the gospel and that the church might declare the gospel. Now, those two things are at the heart of the reason for the gospels. Uh, Let me just put the two references together. We looked at Luke 1.4 which says that he writes his gospel so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. In other words, that gospel is to assure Christians that what they're believing is true. But you know how at the end of John's gospel, when he makes his own purpose statement in chapter 20, in John 20, he says right at the end of the chapter, verse 31, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this gospel has an evangelistic purpose, and Luke says, my purpose is nurture of the church. No, they're not separate from one another. Both purposes run through all the gospels. They are there to bring us to faith, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and they are there to give us certainty of faith, that we may know who the Christ is, what he has done, and what he has taught. And that's why the cross is so central to the gospels, As you know, a large proportion of the Gospels are taken up with the last week in the life of the Lord Jesus, with his passion and his death. In fact, one uh, scholar calls the Gospels passion stories with prefaces. That may be overstating it a bit, but it's saying that the heart of the Gospel is the cross. That is the point to which everything leads, the cross and the resurrection. And that defines for us what the good news is by leading us to Christ the Saviour. Now, the distinctiveness of each gospel, point two. It is very common, of course, to group the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, together, and to call them the synoptic gospels, because uh, together they uh, take us through the ministry of Jesus, event by event, teaching session by teaching session. And there is a considerable body of common material between them. Uh, They trace his ministry in Galilee, and later his ministry in Jerusalem. John is different. John, the fourth gospel, as it's often called, has a Jerusalem focus. John includes stories that the others don't include. And it's very probable that John is the latest of the gospels. And it may well be that he was familiar with at least one of the other gospels, and that part of the inspiration of John is that he includes material that hadn't been recorded before, things like the I am sayings, for example. But whichever of the gospel writers we're looking at, we need to realize that they are also theologians. They are historians, yes, but they are theologians. That is, they have a purpose, a theological purpose, 
a theological base and principle that's running through what they do. Although it used to be believed that Matthew was the first gospel, now most Bible students give the priority to Mark and say Mark was the first to be written, they think. 92% of Mark's gospel is reproduced in Matthew's gospel with certain changes of detail. But Mark is certainly the simplest and the most direct of the Gospels, and it may well be that it was the original. I don't think the order matters particularly, because they're all quite different from one another in terms of their focus, though their overall theological purpose, as I've said, is obviously the same. Well, let's have a look then at Mark to start with. It's a Gospel of great vividness and movement. I like to call Mark the newsreel Gospel. Uh, it's as though the camera zooms in and zooms out and we're here and we're there and we're, it's a very fast-moving gospel. Uh, it divides really into two parts. In 1, 1 to 8.30, we are being all the time faced with one predominant question. Who is this Jesus? He calls himself the Son of Man and that has echoes from the book of Daniel Daniel 7 talks about the Son of Man as a figure of great authority and power to whom God gives eternal rulership. But who is he besides this claim? What does this mean about him? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Now, Mark is wonderful because um, if, like me, you get infuriated by Agatha Christie books where you can't work out who did what, Mark tells you right at the beginning in 1-1 what it's all about. I like Mark. He says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he couldn't have it much plainer than that. He's the Son of God. And uh, Mark makes us understand that in verse 11 of chapter 1. A voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased at the baptism. And again in verse 15. Jesus himself comes into Galilee saying, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. The king has come. And those promises about the son being the king from Psalm 2, Psalm 45 and elsewhere in the Old Testament stand in the background of that declaration. He's bringing in the kingdom because he is the son. Now the early chapters of Mark then are full of demonstrations of his kingly authority so that as we are faced with the question, who is this Jesus, we come to the right answer. He's the king, the son of God. 117, we see his authority in calling disciples who immediately leave their nets and follow him. He has a power over humanity. 125 to 27, he has power over evil spirits so that uh, they obey him. And the people say, where does he get this authority from? Who is this Jesus? In 129 to 34, we see his power over sickness as he heals Simon's mother-in-law, and then multitudes of people brought to the door of the house, and he healed them all of their various diseases. Who is he? In two chapters, uh, chapter 2, 1 to 12, we see that he not only heals, but he forgives sins. And that raises the question, who can forgive sins but God alone? Why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming, say the teachers of the law. But it raises the issue, you see. If he can forgive sins and then make the man walk, clearly the power to make him walk comes from God. So what about the power to forgive sins? It's a divine claim. Who is this Jesus? He claims in 2.28 that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. 
The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He, in other words, is claiming that he can authoritatively say what the law of God means. He's in control of the working out of that law. And that's an extraordinary claim. Who is this Jesus? Or in chapter 4, where the uh, disciples are on the sea and the storm suddenly arises, and he says, quiet, be still, and the wind dies down and it's completely calm. The disciples say, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. In, in the book of Psalms, it's God who stills the tossing of the sea. And as good Jews, they would know that. And as good sailors, fishermen anyway, they would know that uh, when the wind dies down, it doesn't become completely calm immediately. But it did on this day. It's a miracle, you see. Not just that he stills the storm, that's a miracle enough, but he makes it completely calm. He is different from us. Who is he? I don't know if you know the Australian evangelist John Chapman, but when he preaches on this passage, he has a wonderful way of saying to people, if you think that uh, you can actually live up to the standards of Jesus and you can be, as it were, what he was, then try this one. You know, when, next time you're on a cross-channel steamer and it's a bit choppy, uh, go to the back of the boat and say, quiet, be down, get down. And he says, do it quietly because they might um, have the men in the white coats waiting the other side for you. See, nobody can do that. Who can still the storm? Who is this Jesus? And all these events are meant to be making us ask those questions. Chapter 5, verses uh, 35 uh, to 43, he's the conqueror of death. He can raise a girl who clearly had died, Jairus' daughter. Little girl, get up. And so, turning the page in the notes, a great debate begins to rage all the way through these opening chapters of the Gospel. They're amazed at what he does, and there's a whole variety of reactions as they ask these questions. Who is he? What are we to make of him? Well, there are different guesses and different solutions. Uh, some of them are false trails. 2.7, he's a blasphemer, say the teachers of the law. Or 3.22, he's possessed by Beelzebub. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. This is the religious authorities who say that. Or, he's John the Baptist raised from the dead, chapter 6. Or he's Elijah, the prophet that was promised, 6.15. Or, chapter 6, verse 3, he's Joseph, the carpenter's son. He's nobody special. See, they're trying to come to terms with the events and what is being taught. Now, the right answers come from the devils. The devils know, 124 and 57, that he's the Holy One of God. It's the religious people who say he's from the devil. Fascinating, isn't it? And Jesus shuts the devils up and says, don't let anybody know, be quiet. But they're the ones who recognize who he is. And it all leads up, you see, in chapter 8, 29 to 30, to the great question to the disciples. Who do you say? that I am. And there at chapter 8, verse 30, is the watershed of Mark's gospel. As Peter says, you're the Christ, verse 29. You're the Christ. Now, from that point on in the gospel, with the disciples having come to faith, but a very imperfect faith, it's a faith that has to grow, the second half of Mark, from 8.31 to 16, is asking two other questions. 
What sort of Christ is he going to be? And what does following this Christ involve? The first half of the gospel is the question of identity. The second half of the gospel is the question of his purpose and what it means to follow him. Two questions. What sort of Messiah, what sort of Christ is he going to be? And what does following him involve? Immediately, there is great emphasis on his sufferings. You see that in 8.31, 9.31, 10.33. The Son of Man must suffer. He must go to Jerusalem. He must be crucified. And on three days later, he must rise again. The emphasis is on the fact that the disciples, if they follow in his footsteps, will also suffer persecution. Yet, as with Jesus, the suffering will lead to glory. Through the transfiguration, they begin to see that fulfilled, and through the resurrection, fulfilled uh, in a much greater way. And if they follow in his footsteps, then they too can expect to go through the suffering, but ultimately to the glory. So the humanity and the deity of Jesus are blended together. The sufferings he undergoes in his humanity are paralleled by an emphasis on the human failings of the disciples, and the cost of what it means to be a disciple. But just as he comes through the sufferings to glory, so they will follow in his footsteps. So that seems to be Mark's great thrust then. Who is this Jesus? And when you discover, then you have to go on learning that he's the suffering Messiah, and he's the one who will call us to follow in his steps. And of course that all comes out in chapter 8, where Peter is rebuked for saying, no, Lord, you can't do that, and where he's told that if you don't follow me and go my way, you can't acknowledge me as Messiah, you can't be one of my disciples. Now, Matthew, to move on to the second of our four Gospels, is particularly concerned with the Jewish people and how Jesus relates to the Old Testament, just as Luke is particularly concerned with Gentiles. Matthew has two major themes. Jesus as king, which is always related to Jesus as son of God, and Jesus as teacher. Firstly, Jesus as king. Matthew's gospel is fascinating because it establishes the genealogy of Jesus in chapter 1 right the way back to Abraham. See, we were saying how the Bible is one book. Well, the very first book, uh, verse of the New Testament says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We're straight back to the covenant promise. Here is the long-expected son of David. Here is the long-expected fulfiller of the Abrahamic covenant. And he is presented as king from the beginning. He's in David's line. So for Matthew, it's fascinating that in chapter 2, verse 2, it is wise men from the east, Gentile astrologers probably, who come to Jerusalem saying, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? But not, of course, king exclusively of the Jews, as the gospel goes on to show. Nevertheless, that's the note at the beginning. You see the irony of it. The real king of the Jews at the time in Jerusalem, King Herod, the Roman puppet king, when he hears that the king of the Jews has been born, does everything he can to kill him. The Gentiles, who are pagan religionists, superstitious people, are the ones whom God brings to worship him. And the gospel is all about turning it upside down. It's all about God moving in, throwing out the old dead wood of Judaism 
and of the uh, Jewish nation state, such as it was, to bring in the new kingdom, the new wine of the gospel. So when he triumphantly rides into Jerusalem, in chapter 21, as the gospel comes to its climax, it's the king who comes. He's called, uh, the people call out to him that he's the son of David. That title is used eight times in Matthew's gospel about Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic promise. And it's dominant also throughout the passion narrative in Matthew that he is the one who is king, even when he's hanging there on the cross. So chapter 27, verse 11, Are you the king of the Jews, Pilate says? Yes, it's as you say, Jesus replied. Matthew 27, verse 29, They knelt in front of him and mocked him, Hail, king of the Jews, but they crowned him, albeit with thorns. Verse 37, Above his head they placed the written charge, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And verse 42, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. That's what it's all about, you see. Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe him. Well, it's not surprising then that Matthew uses the title Son of David eight times and Son of God 17 times in his gospel. And we know from our studies of Samuel 2 Samuel 7, where God said, you remember to David, I'll build a dynasty for you. You're not going to build a house for me. And from our little look at Psalm 2, where the divine son is seen to be the fulfillment of kingship, that the king as the son of God is saying that whole strand of Old Testament understanding has been fulfilled in Jesus. I'm allowed to plug a little book that I've written last year that came out called Taking Jesus Seriously. Uh, that book deals with this whole theme of the teaching and fulfillment of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel of the Old Testament pictures. Um, Taking Jesus Seriously is published by Christian Focus Publications. Um, but, of course, you're reading all the other books that I've recommended, so there won't be time for that one. Now, Jesus as king. Secondly, Jesus as teacher. Now, this is, of course, a great distinctive of Matthew. There are in Matthew's Gospel five chunks, five blocks of teaching, each marked off uh, in a particular way. Uh, if you look at those references there, I've given you the five blocks. And when you get home sometime and you're going through the notes again, Look at the last verse of each of those blocks and you'll find that they're very, very similar. Uh, it says, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, something else happened. And each of the first verses says Jesus started to teach his disciples or Jesus sat down and said. So clearly we know from the little markers that Matthew's put in that we are to take those five blocks as the very heart of his gospel. Of course, they're likened to the five books of Moses. He's writing to Jews and he's saying, here is the new Torah. Here is the new law from the very mouth of God himself. This is the law he's going to write on our hearts rather than on tablets of stone. So Matthew has often been called the teacher's gospel. And I think that's a very fair description. The teaching content of Matthew is very high. And all the way through, he draws our attention to the fulfillment of the Old Testament. You see, Isaiah had said, in chapter 2 of his prophecy, that when the king comes, what he will do is to teach the Torah. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains, raised up above the hills. Many people will say, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. Why? He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
Well, just as God gave his law at Sinai on a mountain to his people, so Matthew's teaching begins with the Sermon on the Mount, obvious Sinai reflections, and here we have not Moses, but God himself speaking his new Torah to his people. The law is going out from Zion, and God himself is speaking through his son. So here is the teacher, who is also the great prophet that God had promised. He fulfilled in himself all that the Old Testament prophecies pointed forward to. And uh, I can't look at those references now, but again, it's a lovely study to do it, to take those Old Testament fulfillment references at the bottom of page two and work them through and see the glory of our Lord Jesus. We, we, do, we, do, bring him, we do make him pocket-sized, don't we? We do reduce him in our thinking. We need the Old Testament to expand our thinking of how great and glorious he is. He's the culmination and the fulfillment of everything that God had promised. He's the altogether lovely one. He's the fairest among 10,000. He's the one in whom all the promises find their fulfillment. And Matthew wants us to see Jesus as king, Jesus as teacher and Lord. Jesus is the one who fulfills all that the prophets have spoken. Still with me? Page three, Luke. (laughs) Luke is a long gospel and uh, quite a difficult gospel uh, in some ways to find our way through. He has more material that is unique to him than either Matthew or Mark do, and especially in that long central section in Luke that stretches from chapters 9 to 18, where it's usually called the journey to Jerusalem, where Jesus sets his face like a flint Uh, in order to go to the cross and all the events that happen on the way. Now, Luke's special concern, his focus, is with the universal saving message of Christ. Luke is specially interested in the fact that Jesus is the saviour and that he is the saviour of the whole world. So in his uh, birth narratives in chapters 1 and 2, you will find that those references are all to his saving work. 2.11, for example, unto you is born this day in the city of David a saviour. Now, you might expect it to say in the city of David a king. He is a king, but Luke says, no, he's a saviour. That's what the angels stress. That's what Luke is particularly concerned to stress. He is Christ, the Lord's anointed. He is Lord and king, but he's also Jesus. Jesus, of course, means saviour, rescuer. And so it goes on through the gospel till you get to Zacchaeus in chapter 19, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost, and he saves people whom you would never expect to be saved. Now, all that is pulled together for us. I'm going a bit of a pace now. In chapter 4, verses 18 to 19, the end of those references of the first section there, which echoes Isaiah 61, when Jesus in the synagogue in Nazareth stands up and reads the scroll, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, Luke 4.18, because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. He's the rescuer then. And when Jesus um, begins his ministry, he sets it in the context of Isaiah 61, by which he is saying, I am the fulfillment of all these prophecies in the Old Testament that spoke about this great salvation. That's what I've come to do. But the fascinating thing in Luke is, who are the objects of this salvation? Well, chapter 4, verse 18, he's come to preach the good news to the poor. 
Now, there was a sort of prosperity gospel idea around in Judaism at the time, that God showed that he blessed you by your wealth. Therefore, if you were poor, God wasn't interested in you. Jesus says, I've come to preach the good news to the poor. Secondly, he comes to preach to the hungry. Do you remember uh, those words in chapter 1, verse 52, where Mary talks about, um, sorry, it's verse 53, there's a wrong reference there, 153. He has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he sent empty away. He comes in chapter 6 to the spiritually bankrupt, chapter 6, verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, it's undoubtedly clear that all through Luke's gospel, one of the things he's saying is that the people whom the Jewish religious leaders rejected are the very people whom Jesus is interested in. He's interested in tax collectors. They were the rejects of society because of their collaboration with, with the Romans. So Luke 18.13, Luke 19.8, Jesus bothers to save tax collectors. He's interested in shepherds. In fact, the angels appear to the shepherds in the fields of Bethlehem, chapter 2, and they are the people who are told the Saviour's born. But the shepherds were the dregs of society in the first century. They couldn't even get to the temple because they worked on social hours, so they couldn't possibly be religious. You don't have anything to do with shepherds if you're a Pharisee. Beyond the pale. But Jesus is announced at his birth to shepherds. He also is the saviour of women. Women like Anna, chapter 2 who sees in him the consolation of Israel and the fulfillment of the promises. The saviour of the sinful woman who anoints him with, with this precious ointment in chapter 7. The saviour of Mary and Martha in chapter 10. He actually in teaches and instructs women. No rabbi would allow a woman to sit at his feet. After all, he prayed every morning, thank you God that I have been born a Jew and not a woman and not a Gentile. But Jesus loves to teach women. And he says to dear old Martha, hustling around doing the baking, come and sit at my feet. That's what matters most. That's what it's all about. And a crippled woman in chapter 13, he heals. Jesus is the saviour of social outcasts, chapter 15. Do you remember at the beginning of those three parables about the lost uh, sheep and coin and son? How Luke tells us, he sets the context very clearly, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering to hear him. The Pharisees said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Yes, because that's why he come. He's the saviour of Gentiles. Chapter 7 is all about the Gentile centurion who believes in his power. Even, whisper it not in Gath, he's the saviour of Samaritans. He even cares about them. Chapters 9, 10, 17. Now that, you see, is standing the Judaistic traditions on their head saying that this new gospel of God's grace reaches out to those who are unworthy, to those who cannot help themselves. You know that awful English proverb, heaven helps those who help themselves. What absolute nonsense. Heaven helps those who cannot help themselves. And Luke is saying Jesus loves to go to rescue people when they have no hope in worldly terms and in religious terms, because his gospel is a revolutionary gospel of the grace of God reaching out to all our human need. Lastly, John's Gospel. What's the focus of John's Gospel? Well, we've already learnt that in 2031, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Therefore, he is um, introduced to us as the Word, the Logos, 
the Word made flesh, the Son of God. And all the way through John's Gospel, that is being proved to us. From the prologue onwards in chapter 1, where he is proving his deity and establishing that fact and the fundamental unity between uh, Jesus the Son and the Heavenly Father. John wants everyone to see this truth. Sometime when you want to do a study in John, take a concordance and look up the references to the verb to see in John's Gospel. It's, it's a key, really, to the whole Gospel. He wants us to see. But how you come to see is by believing. We say seeing is believing. John says believing is seeing. Again, you see, it turns it round. It's when you believe that you see. He is the word made flesh, and we see that when we submit to his teaching and believe his word. And that's those references 3.11 and 5 and 8 and so on. And then there's this other great emphasis that what we see in Jesus is the glory of God. That is the outshining of the hidden nature of God. The word glory in the Old Testament comes from a Hebrew root that means heaviness. So the glory of God is the weightiness of God. If you can think of carrying an enormously heavy weight, the godness of God, the weightiness of God is seen in his glory. That's how we appreciate the godness of God. He reveals himself in his majesty and holiness and splendor. And Jesus says to Thomas in chapter 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen the glory of God. But John says that the glory is supremely seen in the lifting up of Jesus. And in John's Gospel, that phrase lifting up is used with a double meaning. John loves double meanings. It's the double meaning not only of being exalted in glory, but of being lifted up on the cross. And he puts the two things together and he says, if you want to see the glory of God in Jesus, you see him lifted up on the cross. That's where you see the glory. Like the serpent on the pole in the desert, chapter 3. Chapter 12, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. This to signify the sort of death that he's going to die as he's lifted up on the cross. And supremely, uh, in chapter 13, verse 31, where he says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him as he approaches the cross. This is how you will see the glory of God. And in his high priestly prayer in 17.1, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. You see the nature of God in the face of Jesus Christ, supremely as he's lifted up on the cross as the Passover lamb, suffering for the sins of the whole world. Now, rather like Mark, John, I think, divides into two sections. 1 to 12, we could call the revelation of the word to the world. It's all about the teaching of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the character of Jesus. It's building our picture of him as the glorious son of God, the revelation of the word to the world. And chapter 13 to 21 is about the lifting up of the word for the world. So the revelation of the word to the world, the lifting up of the word on the cross for the world as he dies as the Lamb of God and is himself in dying the Good Shepherd. Now the cross and the resurrection are then the goal and the fulfillment of all this and that is how John wants us to come to realize that Jesus is the Christ. 11.30, so we've got seven minutes for the last page. The centrality of the kingdom.
Now, I've put that in because although it's perhaps more clearly a synoptic gospel theme, it does help us to make the bridge from the Old Testament to the New. It's the great unifying concept as we move into the Gospels. Do you remember how we saw in Mark what Jesus' first words in Mark are? Mark chapter 1, verse 14. The time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Sorry, that's verse 15, Mark 1, 15. Now, that's uh, the heart of the good news, that the kingdom of God has arrived. It's here. Um, in the person of the king. Where you have the king, there the kingly rule, that is the kingdom, is being exercised. Now, there's a, a very strong Old Testament background. God is the king of Israel, Exodus 15, Isaiah 43. And he's the king of all the nations, Psalm 99. So the kingship of God is always a present reality. He's always been the king, and he always will be. But in a future day, God's kingly rule will be recognized by everyone. Isaiah prophesied that, Zechariah 14 prophesied that, and that's what the Jews were looking forward to, the revelation of the king, so that all the world would recognize him as such. That explains why they had messianic expectations that Jesus didn't fulfill. His fulfillment was much more wonderful than anything they could think of. They had these two strands, that he would be the Davidic ruler, Isaiah 9 and 11, in the line of David, a great and mighty king, when Messiah came, and that he would be son of man, Daniel 7, to whom God would give all authority. But between Malachi and Matthew, you've got 400 years in which the sense of God acting in the present began to be eroded away. Um, they came back from exile knowing that they had failed because they didn't obey the law. During the exile, they'd gathered in little groups in Babylon to rehearse the law, and those little groups became the sort of start of the synagogue movement, which developed in Israel in the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew. And also at the same time, groups like the Pharisees began to come to prominence, because the Pharisees taught that if we went into exile for not keeping the law, then what God wants us to do is to keep the law as fully as possible. And while that was true, there is then a projection from that that says, well, therefore, obeying the law in as much detail as possible is the way by which we will persuade God to be gracious to us. It just sort of tips over into a works religion idea that becomes a legalism. And they change the spirit of the law in order to keep its letter. The zealots, for example, wanted to bring in the kingdom by the sword. They were the political wing that were looking for the Messiah to come and exercise his kingly rule. But whether they were political or religious, all those Jews during this period, particularly just immediately before Christ's birth, who were looking for messianic expectations to be fulfilled, they all agreed that it would be an act of God by which he would come to defeat his enemies and gather his nation back to a wholehearted obedience to the law of God. They would be God's people under God's rule in God's place. Now when Jesus comes with Elijah, stroke John the Baptist, having heralded him, saying the exile's over, and he says the kingdom of God is here, you can see why anybody with any sort of religious sense gets terribly interested and excited. 
But what happens is that Jesus' understanding of the kingdom is totally different from their political expectations. They're looking for a king who will turn the Romans out, who will reign in Jerusalem, and who will bring all the nations into subjection to him so that the Jews are top dog. Jesus isn't going to provide that at all. Jesus redefines the kingdom. He focuses their misunderstandings of the Old Testament on his own interpretation of it. And he says the kingdom is the active rule of God. This is point one in the last section, Jesus' understanding. Find it in Mark 4, Matthew 13. The parables of the kingdom are that where God is in control, there he exercises his authority. Now, he is in control of the whole world, but of course he doesn't impose that authority on every individual. He invites men and women to repent and to believe the good news and to submit to his authority. But the kingdom is really present in the world. Point two, it is secretly present because although the king is here in the ministry of Jesus, the majority of people don't recognize him. The kingdom is therefore in their midst and it is in some of their hearts, but for most of them, they are ignorant of it. They do not know who he is. Who is this Jesus? Oh, he's a son of a carpenter. He's a blasphemer. He's a prophet. But only a few saw him as the king. Third point, following the accession, uh, the ascension rather, of Jesus and his exaltation, the kingdom will go out into the whole world. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached among all the nations, Matthew 24, Mark 14. So the kingdom comes in stages. It comes in the ministry of Jesus in the first place, but it is not yet here in its fullness. More about that later, but very important for us to distinguish that there is a nowness of the kingdom and a not-yetness of the kingdom. That there is the kingdom here and now in a measure, but not yet in its fullness. Fourthly, the kingdom will be experienced in its fullness only when the king returns in glory to take his throne. So this first uh, element of the kingdom in the Gospels is very much a manifestation of the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but we haven't got it all yet. There's more to come. Jesus constantly teaches that. Fifthly, his entire ministry substantiates his identity as the king. He fulfills the Old Testament, Matthew 5. His miraculous signs prove his messiahship, Matthew 11. His personal authority confirms his kingship, Matthew 7. His absolute demands on his followers, Luke 14, he's king, he says what's what and his control of everyone's destiny eternally, Matthew 25. All of those are substantiating evidence of his kingship. Sixthly, the entry into the kingdom and the inauguration of the new covenant is only possible through the death of the king. That, of course, is what the Pharisees, etc., could not take. Yes, if he's going to come and turn the Romans out, but who can worship a king who dies on a cross as an outcast criminal? He's the king of Israel. He saved others, so he said, but he can't save himself. Let him come down from the cross if he's the king. Then we'll worship him, but we're not going to worship a king on a cross. But of course, it was only because he was on the cross that he could be the king.